Hi, this is Michael Kaufman from the Clio Awards, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, my favorite podcast, with my pals Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Trapital, the future of music business with economist Will Page. From Music Business Worldwide, Amy Thompson, how I'd fix the music industry in three easy steps. And another from Trapital, why your followers aren't fans of your music. Mm. Well, we are going deep, Jay. It's going to be a fun (laughs) episode, lots of great stuff to talk about. So here we go. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. At top of the morning to you, Jay, good to see you on a lovely, warm Saturday morning here good in Good to Southern see California. you too, my friend. Yeah, we've got uh, some really interesting things to talk about today, yeah. and uh, it's been a fun week because we've uh, a lot of um, a lot of neat notes and interesting things coming through from folks on our little special edition with Merc Mercuriatus, and yeah. it's nice to hear. We really appreciate when people do reach out to us and 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 comment, and we've got a lot of comments, and it's uh, yeah. it was a fun one to do, wasn't it? It really was, um, and I loved all the reshares. I loved all the comments. Um, all the personal notes uh, that were sent over. And uh, it was just such an amazing conversation uh, with him. And like we said on the bonus episode, if you haven't listened to it, um, we talked for a little bit before we hit record. And Merck is like we are. He's a music freak. He's got a record collection. And we were even joking around that the next time we we get together, uh, we want to hang out and see the music collection. Yeah, absolutely. So but good. boy, it's you know, and I, I think like we've we've mentioned before, we either we are talking specifically about him frequently, or or that the things that he kind of has created and put into into motion yeah. almost every episode. And yeah. so it was a, a real treat to to actually chat him up and yeah. and we are of we are all roughly the same age, and you know, so it's the same kind of. Uh, you know, sort of cultural things that that shaped us early on in our careers, and uh, he's uh, he's yeah. a mover and a shaker. Yeah, and, super and smart he, guy, he, he, a super bright guy, and and we'll go on and on and on. And that's what you want when you interview folks is to to have them, you know, go deep on topics and yeah. and and he's very entertaining, very funny, and uh, yeah. and passionate about music. You know, yeah. and and he had one of those. He he was pointing to us. He's trying to show us things, but he had one of those backgrounds when you're on zoom where you yeah. can't really see behind him but you know he just he, he's got a super super deep interest and knowledge in music and a real broad palette of th- stuff he listens to yeah. and that's what you want that's yeah. what you want that guy to be yeah and we're going to talk about a couple of other really smart people that you and i talk about frequently uh today uh on on the podcast one of them is will page and we'll get into that in mm-hmm. a second and, and the other is dan runcie a couple of our favorite, uh, uh, just favorite music people that we follow closely and talk about closely, but sharp, you know. And that was the one of the things that I that I was asking um, uh, Merck about was, you know, it's one thing to be a big music fan, but then he puts on his hat where he's dealing with institutional investors. Okay, that's like an entirely different language. That's a different skill set, right? 
Yeah. Totally. And that's, you know, we're going to talk about a couple of articles that are on Trapital, and that's Dan Runcie. Same thing. It's like, yeah, yeah, he can talk about music all day long, real deep knowledge, and, you know, and yeah. his, his sort of focus is hip hop. Uh, and then, and then it's like, oh yeah, but let me just go now. Going to talk talk about economics and and you know business and and it's like, whoa, dude, yeah, multiple skills here. Yeah, he'll go skills. deep on the music, you know. And and if you go to uh, LinkedIn and and look at his page, um, it, it spells it out pretty simply. He says that he's the founder of Trapital, a media company that covers hip hop, business, and strategy. Trapital assesses the deals, companies, and artists that shape the culture. Trapital's audience includes thousands of music executives, media moguls, and venture capitalists. And, you know, I subscribe to his newsletter. We talk about it on this show. We post a lot of his, uh, you know, his articles in your morning coffee. And today we're going to cover two really, really uh, important stories that Dan wrote. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So looking, looking, to, looking forward to it to say the least. And uh, and by the way, I get to talk to the groovy dude that I am talking to right now, my good friend Jay Gilbert. He is the co-founder of music marketing and strategy company Label Logic. He's the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter, which informs everything we do here on the podcast. And he's a former executive with Universal, Sony, and Warner Music Groups, also Fox Home Entertainment. And just a groovy guy that is always <sighs> fighting for his right. Thank you. I appreciate that and the checks in the mail. Um, my uh, co-host here is longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, Mike Etchart, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music. And the guy that introduced me to high-res audio, uh, you know, Dolby Atmos in particular. And uh, we're going to be going in the studio pretty soon and... Uh, Taking our our buddy from Apple and uh, maybe even another friend up to uh, listen to some of those Dolby Atmos mixes, which are just breathtaking. Yes, yes, yes. We're going to go to Greg Penny's studio, and our friend Greg Penny is over in the UK right now as we speak, I believe, working on some stuff. So uh, looking forward to that. And, and, and of course, Jay, we, we get to do this every week, and we have wonderful support from our groovy sponsors. Yeah. We I sure will let do. you start the, the big thanks. Yeah, a big thank you to the Music Business Association. It's a four-day Music Biz 2022 conference, and the agenda has just been announced. And it's taking place May 9th through 12th at the JW Marriott in Nashville, along with returning favorites like the Metadata Summit, Next Gen Now, DSP Workshops, and the Brand Summit, which you know this year include presentations by Pepsi, MasterCard, and the NFL um, you'll find timely new additions for 2022, including conversations on NFTs, gaming, uh, immersive music experiences, catalog acquisitions, and uh, much, much more. Visit musicbiz.org for more, and uh, I will see you there. And hopefully beating the humidity before the humidity gets there. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. And we are, we are also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is, it is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. And yes, Bands in Town, over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, Recommendations and messages from their favorite artists. It is the number one artist service platform connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Big yeah. thanks, Music Business big Association, yeah. Hypebot, Bands in Town. Big, big, big thanks. Yeah. Um, Speaking of thanks, um, let's let's thank uh, our good friend Michael Kaufman for that cool intro. Oh yeah. Um, Michael is an old friend of ours, um, executive director of Clio Music um, currently. Um, the 2022 Clio Music Awards are coming up, um, hosted by Yola. It'll be uh, Tuesday, May 10th at that Music Biz conference that we just referred to. I'll be there. Should be a lot of fun. Oh, and I Thank love you, Michael. Yola, by the way, yes, absolutely. Big thanks. Well, Jay, let us uh, put our floaties on and jump <laughs> into the pool. What do you say? Let's do it. Um, this this first one is a story, and it's a well, it's really a podcast that they transcribed. 
Um, and it's, uh, you know, as you mentioned, it's uh, the Trapital podcast, you know, Dan Runcie's podcast. Just a fantastic interview with uh, Will Page. And if you don't know who Will Page is, uh, he wrote this really amazing book called Tarzan Economics. I've started reading some of his pieces online. One was called Twitch's Rockonomics that you and I covered. And after that, I reached out via a mutual friend and had a really cool conversation Will, with Will and found out quickly uh, just how uh, funny, uh, smart uh, he is, uh, such a great music fan. And I, I've heard him interviewed before. In fact, you know, I interviewed him on my other podcast, Music Biz Weekly, episode number 475, but not to the level that Dan Runcie can do it. Um, so you can listen to the podcast, and we have a link there, or you can see the transcription if you, you like to read. Um, the, the intro says, one of the most unique insights into the state of the music business today doesn't come from a record label exec, not from an agent, not from an artist. No, it, come, <laughs> it comes from Scottish economist Will Page, who served that role for Spotify from 2012 to 2019. And that was an, a, a period of explosive growth uh, for Spotify. But if you ask Will Page about streaming's future, he's not nearly as optimistic as the rest of the industry. Quote, the party has to come to an end. Unquote. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it starts by saying, this is talking about kind of a hook that grabs you. He says he believes uh, the music industry is transitioning from an herbivore market to a carnivore one. And to clarify, he says, in other words, future growth will not come from brand new customers. It'll come from the streaming services eating into each other's market share. Not only has subscriber counts possibly tapped out, in his opinion, but streaming services have also put a ceiling on revenues by charging only $9.99, a price that hasn't budged in 20 years despite giant leaps in technology and music catalog size. Very interesting thing. And it, it, what I thought of immediately was, um, remember um, when uh, Apple, not too long ago, announced, because there was talk about adding different tiers for streaming uh, and charging more for immersive mixes and for high-resolution audio. And then Apple comes out and says, no, we're going to include all of that for free into our regular subscription price. Right. And that, I'm, I'm sure, was a shot over the bow at both Amazon and and Spotify. And so, you know, that's the first thing I thought of when he said that. But it's a fascinating kind of take on what's going on. And we talk a lot about how the fact that, you know, you look at... Um, Netflix and all of the streaming movie television services they they are not shy about raising their prices at no. all and yet we are still at 9.99 a killer deal. Yeah. And it should be more. Yeah, I think it really should be. Um and we talk about this quite a bit on this podcast and we report on these stories where Amazon, you know, they were one of the first to have high uh, high res audio added without an extra fee. Um, there are some really cool uh, high-res audio um, platforms out there like Kobuz, if, if you're mm -hmm. into that thing. Um, but you're right. There, there was a missed opportunity there. I think it's grossly undervalued. And that ties into the whole ecosystem, you know, how much, you know, as Merck points out, you know, how unfairly songwriters are being paid currently. There's a finite pie that we need to slice up. And there's such great value. And as you mentioned, some of these other streaming services on the TV and movie side, they've raised their rates, you know, and uh, there, there's a certain value there. The difference, I think, is that on the TV side, they're very different offerings, whereas on the music side, they're pretty similar. I think Dan had mentioned in this article, it's like 80% the same across the board mm -hmm. on all these streaming services. So it's definitely something we need to uh, we look at going forward. And I don't think there'd be a lot of pushback for, for a, an increase in price. I think on the, on the film and TV side, and we're, we actually Netflix numbers came out this week, and they were pretty not great. And so yeah, they um, lost but I think, a bunch of and, subscribers, yeah. Yes, 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 exactly. But I think in in it's kind of like it's it's two different universes. It's, everybody wants to have a music service, and that will not change. The other services for, for for at least in my house, and I'm sure for most people, you know, you start to assess. It's like, okay, what do I do? am I going to need HBO for the next couple of months? Well, maybe I'll I'll cancel that, and maybe I'll jump back in. People are jumping back in and out yeah. because 
you know, there's so many choices now. There's and you can't have them all. Yeah, and I wonder and, how much the lockdown had had to do with a lot of their growth. Um, sure, for I people trapped at home and they subscribe mm-hmm. to these things, and then maybe when they're back, uh, kind of coming back to that new abnormal and they're commuting again you know, things are a little bit different. And of course, that plays right into the hands of audio streaming. If you have any type of commute, if you like to listen to music mm-hmm. at work and are allowed to do that. So there you go. Yeah, you're not going to give music up, I don't think. And I think there's very, there's a, I don't think there's going to be a tremendous pushback if they raised to twelve ninety nine or whatever the number is. It seems very reasonable. I think I'd give that. up. Anyway, I'd give up yeah. groceries before I would give up my <laughs> my music. Um, I think so. And there's this really great story, and I'm going to butcher it, that my business partner Jeff Mosco uh, alludes to back in the early days of uh, of Motown. And Jeff, forgive me because I know I'm going to get this wrong, but the gist of it is that they'd have these meetings, and it wasn't just the executives there. They would bring in the secretaries and the people who cleaned up, and just anybody in the building to basically vote on which song should be singles. And the line was something to the effect of, if you only had a buck, are you going to get the hot dog or are you going to buy this single, right? right? And it had to be, the answer had to be, I'm going to buy this single, right? Yeah. So yeah, another yeah, part yeah, of absolutely. this that I think is really interesting is um, Dan asked him about the IFPI report. And as you know, there's the RIAA, which is uh, U.S., and then the IFPI report is basically global. And it's just this mm-hmm. amazing report that lists, it's like a, you know, a report card on the music industry globally on every aspect. So he alludes to this, and, and Dan asked him, you know, like, well, what were some of the things that stuck out to you? And, and Will said, I'll give you a couple. The first one is the global business. You know, last time I looked, um, I think there's 208 countries in the world. The global yearbook that we're discussing here, I think, has 58. So we're calling it the global music industry, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, 58 out of those, you know, 208, 208 countries. And I, th- I hadn't looked at it like that. Um, and he says it's also becoming more, quote unquote, American. You know, when Spotify launched, you know, uh, uh, Americans made 20 to 23 percent of the music business. Today, it's 37%. And then he said, kind of the second thing is, you know, the vinyl recovery. And I love this line. He says it's defying the laws of gravity. Uh, Will has all these yeah. great lines, and that's, that's yeah. what I'm going to steal. Um, we're now looking at vinyl being worth about a half a billion dollars, which is more than it's been worth in the past 30 years. It's worth more than CDs, cassettes, and downloads, the three formats that were supposed to declare that vinyl is dead, right? On the consumer side... He, he says he saw a survey that suggested that a majority, over half of all vinyl buyers, don't own a record player. And I had heard something like that before, and I find that fascinating, you know, that Absolutely. they're still streaming the music, but they want to have that vinyl up on their wall. I mean, he talks about how some people frame it, you know, and the frame costs more than <laughs> the vinyl does. But, you know, he breaks up that kind of the economics there, that if there's an album that has like, you know, 10 songs on it and three of them are just awesome, you know, that's a whole whole different equation because in the streaming world, it's different than, let's say, the vinyl or CD world because you're only streaming those killer tracks. And I hadn't really thought of that. It's a whole different experience. When you see the sale of a CD or vinyl, you count it. Okay, there were a million of these sold. But that doesn't tell you about consumption. You know, if I'm just making this up based on his remark there, let's say 500,000 of those are just ending up on people's shelves to show how cool they are. Well, that's, they bought the thing, but they're not listening to it over and over. Maybe they're listening on streaming or something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's fascinating. And, 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 you know, can that be sustained? And I just don't know. You know, it's, at least for the vinyl thing, there's not really a... Uh, something like you can you can kind of refer to that that would give you a, a glimpse into the future you know the, yeah. that sort of thing technology wise and it's just everything it, it's so unique yeah. what has happened with vinyl yeah. and i i cannot predict what's going to happen will it conti- i mean it you know it's i don't think it can t- continue at this pace well but we're not we're not we don't have the capacity yet to even fulfill no. the rate you know that it's at right now you know i was talking to terry courier from music millennium and he was talking about these big orders that he places for vinyl and he gets you know 10 percent of the order so we're not to the point where we even know where that's going and one thing i learned from not just you know will page but you know we talked a little bit about that podcast freakonomics i I just love economics in general 
And the, the thing that I learned about economics is it's not, not necessarily always about money. It's more about human behavior, about incentives. Psychology. Yeah, psychology. Exactly. Why do we do the things that we do? Um, Seth Godin has this great line, people like us do things like this. People like us do things like this. So you think about Kiss fans or Jimmy Buffett parrot heads or deadheads or whatever. That's part of a community because people like us do things like this. And you had touched on something that... I just thought it was brilliant about, you know, the herbivores versus carnivores, you know, line at the beginning. Oh, yeah. And, and he said, you know, in America, we've had herbivores. We've had Spotify growing, Apple growing, Amazon growing, YouTube growing. Everybody's reporting growth, even Pandora. But we're going to see at some point that, you know, Apple will grow by eating into Spotify, you know, or YouTube will grow by eating into Amazon's growth. So the key question you have to ask is when do we go from this herbivore market to that carnivore market super fascinating stuff yeah absolutely and and, you know and and whenever you kind of you look at those names that he that that he was talking about you know app apple grows by eating spotify and then youtube etc you know don't forget out of those things out of those companies we're talking about apple spotify youtube amazon spotify just sticks out like a sore thumb because this is all they do, you know, and those other uh, carnivores, let's call them Spotify, excuse me, Apple, YouTube, Amazon, they all have lots of other. It's not their core business, right? It's not their core business. And they can, they can be aggressive. They can be um, predatory. They can take chances. And they can take chances. And, and they've just got a lot more wiggle room with which to, to be aggressive. Yeah. And what, what, what does that mean? I don't know what that means, but I just know that when I see those four companies mentioned, that to me continues to pop into my head. Yeah, you is, know, I said they could take chances, but yeah. they really don't. It's it's Spotify who's taking the chances. Mm-hmm. It's Spotify mm-hmm. who's out innovating uh, everybody else in my mind with all of the things that they do and all of the access that I have as a music marketer or my artists have to go into Spotify for artists. And yes, there's Amazon music for artists and there's Apple music for artists, etc. But none of them have all of the options that I have with Spotify. I can change that banner. I can change the artist image. I can put social links up there. I can put 140 images there. I can put a personal message, you know, bio. There's just, there's so many things that I can do. And I think they're talking about competing on price. Dan makes a really good point here. But before I, I, I read that point that he made, I think that the, the competition really has to move away from price you know, so they're not eating into each other's um, mm-hmm. uh, market share on price. That it's more a competition on some of those things that I just mentioned, those innovations and access and making it a community. I think there's a, a missed opportunity here of having the DSP, regardless of who it is, be that community, be that place where you have control, almost like it's your website that you can, yeah. I know they've, you know, they've partnered with Shopify for merch and they're doing some really cool things and we're headed in that direction, but I think we're just scratching the surface. You know, Dan points out that shifting to that carnivore mentality, you know, is, is really because r- roughly 80% of the content they offer, you know, is, is the same across the platforms. And he says that it's, you know, it could be more of a price war, you know, in like a, in video streaming, most of them have different content. And I think that's really important. Yeah, and he says, he says, I, I think we're in peak subscriber territory, where at some point soon we're going to start seeing growth happen through stealing other customers as opposed to finding your own. Again, that's kind of what, what we kind of started with. And he says, so I just want to put that warning flag out there now. We're partying like it's 1989. Fine. <laughs> but at some point, the party has to come to an end and growth is going to come at the expense of other players that then flips, uh, you know, that, that then kind of changes ev- the way everything is going in the market. And he, he talks about oil and peak oil. And, and you know, when, when once you've extracted more, more oil that, that's in the ground, everything starts getting more expensive. And that's, yeah. you know, we're kind of in that territory now. And it makes sense to me, you know, it, it, it totally makes sense to me. There's, you know, can, and I think somewhere else in the article he mentions that, you know, yes, there's, there's, 
whatever the number is, 110 million subscribers at the moment in the in the country of, of 320 million. But there's that doesn't mean that there's 220 million left to that are going to subscribe. There's just a ton of people that will never subscribe. So right. what is the number of maximum subscribers you have in a given country in a given territory? Maybe maybe we're there or approaching there now here. Yeah, I don't know, but if that's the case, it's not. You know, you don't have this gigantic runway of more customers still coming. Yeah, which is sometimes with the assumption that that's the case. Yeah, so that's streaming. He also talked about the live uh, business, mm. um, and he pointed out something that I thought was really interesting. He said that he was noticing that the industry was changing. You know, um, and he talks about specifically in in the UK. You know, between like 2012, the year of the London Olympics, and 2019, he said the live music industry in the UK had exploded, and, and you know, but the growth was lopsided. All the growth came from stadiums, festivals, and to a lesser extent, arenas. You know, the theaters, the 2,000, 3,000 capacity theaters like the Fillmore West. Um, those were actually shrinking in size. So we had this lopsided live music industry, which is going in the right direction. You know, towards the head as opposed to the long tail, you know, the stadiums and the festivals, uh, the arena as opposed to the theater, you know, as the club's, you know, uh, university venue. So that's the live music market. And you said the breadwinner for most artists, you know, I think it makes up about 70% of what artists, you know, live on, you know, comes from the road. And a lot of it's vanished. And his point was, how do we get that back? Now, clearly the, uh, the pandemic has just devastated you know the music industry and it's it is crawling back you know i'd read this article in rolling stone about how south by southwest you know a, a lot of those events and shows was like a super spreader event and there were some spikes again so we're not out mm -hmm. of the woods completely yet but we're certainly you know on the right track and i wonder if if the if the shine on festivals is um is really kind of waning um I don't know. You know I read an article the other day that said it's it's not waning. Um, but but I would like to have you complete that thought. I, I, but I wanted to just there was one last note here, and it was yeah, about ahead, festivals. It said, you know, with festivals, you know, the costs are all taken care of by the festival. But your you know your heart says what what does that you do uh, you know intimate relationships with your fans, right? In other words, you're staring at fifty thousand strangers in a muddy field. That's different from staring at 2,000 friends at the Fillmore West. Absolutely. No, no, I love that line. Exactly. But, the, the, you know, it, it, we're talking about festivals, of course, and, and right in Coachella season here in Southern California. And the LA Times did an interesting article. It showed, it was kind of a, a pictorial of what it looks like at Coachella just for the general public. Now, of course, you hear about all these VIP packages and all of that stuff. Right. And great. If you're going to spend several thousand dollars, I'm sure your Coachella experience is going to be great. <laughs> However, better be. if you are just the great unwashed, like I would be going to Coachella, <laughs> where you're going to walk in and whatever the tickets are costing, you know, there's, there's a lack of seating. There's a lack of shade. Everything is freaking expensive. It's a pretty crappy experience. Now... Am I, and I'm not 22 anymore, That's so exactly I'm saying right. it this from yeah. a guy who's a little bit older, but still, I think even like even my kids, when I've kind of with talking to them about this, it's like, yeah, that doesn't seem like a fun thing to do. You know, it's like the experience of, of, of the kind of the general, the more general populace that goes to these festivals is really kind of a crappy experience. Um, and at some point, is there a pushback on it? And yet it's still expensive. Yeah. Um, and I guess you're right. It depends who you ask. If it's somebody who's getting the VIP treatment and has, you know, really great food, it's like, you know, when you go to a sporting event and you're in one of the boxes sure. and you've got the, you know, the sushi there and a nice comfortable leather couch and, you know, all of that, as opposed to sitting, you know, next to a guy screaming for the opposing team. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I don't go to a lot of uh, festivals. Um, I, I'm just so spoiled. I like, to, I like to sit and relax and hear the music and see the show and, you know, that sort of thing. But I've certainly been to my fair share of them, you know, for work. And they're, oh, yeah. they're exhausting. You know, I mean, it's like an exactly. all-day thing and they're meet and greets and they're, you know, just trying to get to the bathroom and or get food and, you know, the water, the price of a bottle of water, you know, things like that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's insane. Yeah. yeah. And so, so I, I, 
that's just kind of what I was, as he's talking about festivals and stuff like that in this article, and then I'm thinking of that article the LA Times did about the realities of Coachella right now, what it's really like, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's not great if you're just, you know, if, if you're a celebrity, of course, it's a fabulous event and wonderful. Or maybe to your point, to. if you're a kid um, and you haven't been to a lot of shows and you in one fell swoop, you can see yes. a whole, you know, day's worth of just great artists. And yeah, it, but for someone who maybe is a little older, you know, maybe it's not the best experience if you're not doing the, the VIP thing. Um, to shift gears just really quickly over to publishing, we don't have to talk about this a lot, but I just thought this was really charming. Um, Will was saying that the way that labels and publishing were taught to him, you know, is from his Aunt Doreen uh, Lauder. And she worked at Decca Records. And there's a great mm-hmm. story. You, you need to listen to the podcast. But um, he said, this is how the music industry works. The record label piece, uh, uh, you know, of that publishing, that's that's your drugs. And no, I'm sorry, the, the record industry is the drugs and the publishing is your pension. I'm totally butchering mm-hmm. that, but you get what he's, what he's saying. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, labels went from boom time with CDs to bust with piracy, and now they're booming again with streaming. And I tell people all the time, you know, it's, it, that's where the revenue is. For, for the middle class and developing artists, you're not going to make a ton of revenue from sales streams and downloads. You're going to get that from things like publishing, sync licensing, you know, um, touring, merch, those types of things. Maybe even some of them, I have a couple of artists who are doing pretty well with like stems and beats, but you know, that mm-hmm. ecosystem, there's a lot of, there's a lot more ways to make revenue. Um, but you need to pay attention to publishing. Like we talked about with Merck and you know, your story about Bob Dylan, it's, it's so important to make sure that that's on your radar. Right. And as, as Merck has pointed out, you know, the, the, publishing world has has changed once the major recorded music companies uh, controlled or, or bought into them. And so, you know, they're really still getting sort of short shrift on a lot of these deals. And, yeah. well, not, not sort of, they are. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's, go back and listen to that special, if, if, <laughs> our, our special yeah, it's so episode, good. If, you, if, you, if, if you're not familiar with that, and yeah. hear him explain it. And... So true, um, but that's a good way of thinking about it. It's your pension, you yeah. Know? And it's and we used to refer to it as a business of pennies, yeah. whereas mailbox the, money, rec- mailbox money, exactly. But yeah. boy, it is certainly, as Merck would say, it is the uh, really the tent poles yeah. that hold up the tent. Yeah, you know, the, the absolutely, absolutely. And I, I want to make sure. I mean, we could talk all day about this, um, but there's a couple of other things that I want to make sure that you and I touch on. You know, one is kind of um, the the tip jar or the name your own price model, which he talks about, which I think is really interesting. And the other is kind of his, that kiss promotion, which I thought was brilliant, but just really quickly, you know, he talks about, you know, Epic games being acquired by Bandcamp, And as he, he starts talking about Radiohead and, you know, you'll remember years back, you know, they had this kind of voluntary price, this tip jar model. And what he found is, you know, if you put your album out on, on Bandcamp, for example, and it could be a vinyl record, uh, remember that people are paying to stream it um, also, those people that buy the vinyl. So if you put a, you know, an album out on Bandcamp and you name, you know, say name your own price, no minimum, but there's a guidance of like, let's say $10, the average price that people pay is $14, you know, that 40% increase. Mm -hmm. And I find that that human behavior, that economics is really interesting that instead of saying this vinyl is, you know, $20, you say, you know, we'd like you, you know, we'd like it to be around $20, but those super fans, you know, they may pay you $30 for that. And they found it, it, it all washed out in the cycle in that you would make more money by letting the consumer name their own price. Mm-hmm. That's that makes me nervous thinking about that <laughs> because oh, I don't, it's, just, it's not just for everyone. It's not for everyone. Yeah, that's that's a. Um, I'd like to do an experiment you know, with it, you know, um, and just you know maybe it's not going to work for Beyonce, but it might work for a developing artist. Yes, you know, um, yes, yes, yes. We'll talk about yeah. that kiss thing next, but I just there was just one line in here that really jumped out at me and I highlighted it. He was recently at South by Southwest and he said it was the first time he went to South by Southwest. This is Will Page where no one asked him about the band he saw last night. Everybody asked me what VR headset that I tried. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You just kind of go, oh, really? But that's that's part of what what it what South by Southwest has South by Southwest has turned into for sure. But it's still depressing. You know, it's and that's maybe that's old guy talking uh, when I say that, which is it's probably true. But yeah. But yeah. I was really surprised to see that. You know, then we talked about this with Merck too. Merck was a big Kiss fan as a young man. We were both Kiss fans, as as, as still Kiss fans. But um, to see him, he's Scottish. You know, I didn't. I and I, I guess they were huge all over the world, of course. But to to read that he was a big Kiss fan, yeah, is, is, I think is it's because cool. we're kind of that same age group, and at the time there was just nothing like them. But let's let's talk about that promotion. Um, where he talks about, I believe it was like 1975, um, and he likens this to kind of like the first NFT and how far ahead of their time, you know, Ki- totally. Kiss were. And if you haven't heard the story, you know, Kiss had a contest where you, you know, back then you couldn't see them without makeup, and they they were never photographed without makeup, at least not you know anything published. And so there, there was this mystery behind it, and it was part of their mystique. Anyway, long story short, they did a promotion where you could get a photograph of Kiss without makeup, and there were five lucky winners. And you got this package in the mail, this envelope that you had to open with scissors. And when you opened it up, um, there was a photograph of Kiss without makeup, and then it would go black. It was almost like a Bansky display or something. And those who know photography know that if you uh, develop um, a print, but you don't uh, put it into the fixer, um, when it's exposed to light, it turns black. Um, And they sent these out. So you got to see them without makeup, you know, for uh, a moment. And then it disappeared. (laughs) Such a great... And you uh, you know folks in that camp. I would love to know who thought of that, whose idea that was. It's probably Gene's idea, I I would imagine. But it's such a especially when you think of the times you know it's it's um it's what a, what a great idea what a great concept and what a clever way of spinning it and i'm just stoked that the economist will page knew that story too which is great yeah you know, it's, and w- and the uh, what i what i find really interesting about the entire conversation and, and like jay was saying you know you really got to go back and re- and either read it or listen to it but it's you know he is so sharp and when you when you bring these and, and as you mentioned you know economics is Part business analysis, part psychological analysis, part sociological analysis. It's a really interesting mix of all those things. And to hear his take on that from coming from that education and that background and apply it to music and music consumption yeah. and streaming and all of these things, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, I highly recommend well worth it. the time. I highly recommend his book to Tarzan Economics. It's it's mm. amazing. And if you Google um, Twitch's Rockonomics, uh, we we raved about that on this podcast, and I'll just leave you with uh, leave this story with <laughs> this thought. Dan had asked him this really intelligent question, and uh, Will's response before he got into the answer was, "Wow, those comments are deeper than Loch Ness." <laughs> <laughs> That's right, from a Scotsman, or yes, exactly. So, what good. more could you say? Yeah, great, great piece, and. Um, Again, Dan Dan over at Trapital, you know, what a what a great interview. And yeah. Dan is Respect. Dan Dan was keeping right up with him. So that that's a that's a pretty damn good yeah. thing to do when you're talking to Will Page. So. Yeah. All right, on to the next one, Jay. This is from Music Business Worldwide. Uh, Amy Thompson, how I'd fix the music industry in three easy steps. And uh, what I found interesting was I would not have guessed those three easy steps having just seen the headline. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's it's a really interesting article. She's, by the way, the chief catalog officer at Hypnosis. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we spoke with Merck. Yep. And, um, and so she talked about, uh, and actually, who, who wrote the article? It was... Uh, well, it's Tim it's, Ingham. It's, just, it's actually from a, a podcast. So it's... Oh, that's right. That that's Tim right. Ingham did for Music Business Worldwide. And just just so you know, um, Amy, first of all, I just I loved this this interview, this podcast, you know, Tim Ingham. I rave about him almost every week. It's just one of my favorite podcasts. And he's just such a great source of not only news about the music industry, but commentary about the music industry. Mm -hmm. And just so you know who Amy is, as Mike pointed out, yeah, she's the chief catalog officer at Hypnosis. But prior to joining Hypnosis, she ran her own artist management company, ATM Artists, and they represented acts like Seal, you know, DJ Snake, uh, Swedish House Mafia, 
she actually took Swedish House uh, Mafia from being a baby band to one of the biggest EDM bands on the planet in the early 2010s. And she's also worked with you know Kanye West. Just to give you a little context on on who Amy is. Yes. And on that um, podcast, she talked about the three areas of the music business she believes needed drastic change. The first one, number one, is NDAs, which, of course, as everyone listening probably knows, is a non-disclosure agreement. And she's talking about the non-disclosure agreements in the streaming payment terms of artist and songwriters' contracts. And I haven't thought about that, to be honest, but you would, and I'll let you share your story that we, we were talking about before, and you've seen some of these. Well, yeah. And a couple of things are, are kind of interesting about when, about what an artist actually sees, like when it comes to Spotify and the different plans. I'll let you finish well, that story. Well, yeah, and if you listen to, uh, Amy explains it much better than I could, but basically that's DSP streaming rates are under NDA, non-disclosure mm-hmm. agreements, right? So we don't really know exactly what... Uh, is being paid. Uh, and, and it's so complicated. If you've ever seen some of these statements, um, there are so many line items. It's not as simple as it was 20 years ago um, right. where there's just, you know, um, sales on different configurations. She points out that there's 31 line items, 31 plans on Spotify alone. Um, that's, that's crazy. You know, but if you get the statement, there are only four. So there's kind of a a disconnect there. Um, She points out in the interview that we need one database of all songs. And and I I couldn't agree with her more. Um, Right now, as you probably know, there's an ISRC code. And that's a unique code for every song. Right. But there's also an ISWC, which is really on the publishing side, the writer side. And that doesn't get uh, a lot of attention. Um, Writers send in their splits. Right. So there, but there's no ISWC codes that are ingested into DSPs. So DSPs create this monthly report to the PROs, uh, performing rights organizations, Mm -hmm. CSAC, Mm -hmm. ASCAP, those kinds of things. Um, And then the PROs match those codes. But here's the thing that jumps out at me. And the one thing, if you take away one thing from this, is that 35% of the song codes are not matched. 35%. Unbelievable. Um, Unbelievable. You know, and she points out that this is the only industry on the planet that profits from bad data. You know, we're talking about copyright law, you know, which is from automated piano rolls in the 1800s, you know, and she's just calling for some change. And this ties in beautifully to our conversation with Merck. This ties beautifully into all of our conversations about the Copyright Royalty Board. This is all part of the mix. But um, you had touched on, there's three things here, right? You had touched on NDAs. What were the other two? The other two, so uh, number one is NDAs. Uh, Number two is data. And she says, as in the flow of data to music makers and the vast inefficiencies that bad data is causing. And then she, the number three is service and royalties, particularly the level of service that catalog artists are receiving from labels, despite their records all being available at the click of a button on Spotify and all the rest. So, So those are the three things that she is saying needs drastic change. But I got to tell you that the whole thing about ISRCs, which of course is the, what is that? It's the International Recording, what is the, what does the ISRC mean? International Recording Copyright ISRC. Anyway, anyway, what a code or whatever it is. I, and I've uploaded a zillion tracks to, to, to a DSP. Never once have I ever heard that, that those existed. Yeah. ISRC is International Standard Recording Code. There you go. And here's the thing. There, there's one for every song. So if, if you and I record a song, there's an ISRC code. But if there's a remix of that song or a live version of that song, that's a different ISRC code. It's a unique identifier. Mm-hmm. Now, the data, you, you and I hear this all the time, that there's 60,000 tracks uploaded every day to Spotify, whatever. Well, that's not really entirely accurate. The, the number I can tell you, and it gets a little muddy, but stay with me here. The number of ISRCs uploaded to the DSPs in 2021, you know, that was about 29 million different ISRCs. So there's one for the video, there's one for the remix, whatever. So that's not Mm -hmm. songs. There's not, you know, um, 29 million songs. There's 29 
ISRCs. And that, that comes to uh, 79,000 a day. So when you hear, oh, there's 60,000 uploaded every day, well, is that unique songs without videos? Yes. Is that including videos? Is that different versions? I think that 60,000 was ISRCs, and now that's grown to 79,000. But, you know, we're talking about catalog. Catalog's a majority of our business, right? You and I, but again, Absolutely. you and I talked about last week, what is catalog? It's something that's 18 months or older. And I would argue that that's not catalog. It should be based on velocity, but we won't go down that rabbit hole. But, you know, since 2006, that's right around when streaming started, she points out that most labels haven't heard from, or I'm sorry, most artists haven't heard from their labels since 2006. You know, and yeah. if, if we're doing so much business on catalog and you're giving up so much revenue to these labels and distributors, that's the challenge because everybody's focused on the hot new releases that are streaming. Um, but I don't know if you follow uh, Glenn Peoples from Billboard. We talk about him a lot. Um, he's a dear friend and just a, a great guy. But he has a weekly um, newsletter called The Ledger. And not this week, but last week, he had this really cool chart. And one of the things I grabbed from it was that um, it's 0.88. It's less than 1% of music released um, in the last year um, has had a million streams, less than 1%. So yeah. we're focusing on all these big, you know, big hit things, Billie Eilish, Doja Cat, you know, Megan Thee Stallion, all this, you know, this stuff. But really, if you look at all the music that's being released, there's, there's this gap, you know, and primarily most of the revenue is coming from catalog. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, she was mentioning... Um, also, kind of calling for simplicity, as she said, uh, Thomas also or uh, Tom Thompson also calls for simplicity in the way that artists and songwriters are accounted to by their labels and publishing and publishers, and expresses exasperation over the percentage of potential earnings that are taken from writers through the industry's international network of collection societies. Why does it take eighteen months for revenue from a stream to come back to me? Because the PROs are now really controlling all streaming revenue on behalf of the writer, question mark, she asks. And that's the other thing that you forget is it's like it takes forever to get accounting on some of these things. And again, getting back to data. Um, but I also wanted to mention a thing about, you know, labels and artists or, or artists not having heard from their labels for a long time. Back when I was doing catalog at Capital, actually, I was stunned at, 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 at that time when, especially when you have these heritage artists, how hard it is to stay in touch with them because they have changing managers, changing business managers. They might it's, move, it, you know, it might be a it's, different address yes, or a different email it, address absolutely. or a different phone number. Yeah. yeah. Not that I, yeah, they should have enough people to kind of deal with this, but it is really hard. And, and I don't know if you've, you know, like I've, I also kind of manage a catalog and, and suddenly you'll be sending out royalty checks and then suddenly they just get returned. Yeah. People move and they don't leave forwarding addresses, and then you've got to track them down. It is really amazing how, uh, when you talk to people that work in royalties departments, how hard it is, especially the the further back it goes for artists, yeah. um, and then when artists die, how the, how those things transfer. So yeah. I I do want to say that that's that is a real issue at the moment, and yeah, I've and dealt I, with it. I personally. think that the blockchain technology is amazing, and I think that will eventually help. Uh, that trackability, traceability. But one of the things that she talks about is, you know, some of these catalog groups and you and I have worked for catalog groups. You know, I work for Universal Music Enterprises. I've worked with Rhino, um, work with some real, those people are very aggressive, very smart people working catalog, doing creative things. Music Ally does these recaps of some of these marketing uh, campaigns. You know, they did one on Def Leppard recently that was really interesting that you should check out. But she points out something that I hadn't really thought of because we're so aggressive with catalog, um, at least you know when I was with those companies, but that record deals don't cover services from record labels uh, when it comes to catalog. Now think about that for a second. When you sign a record deal, you're talking about what you're going, what the record label's roles and responsibilities are going to be to mm -hmm. exploit that music and maybe to help with touring or radio or sync or, or whatever. But she's saying that in these agreements, and I think she's right, there really isn't much about, well, what are, what are we going to do with, how are we going to drive 
more consumption of the catalog. And it's to their best interest to do that, but it's not always done. And sometimes something like that Dreams Fleetwood Mac TikTok moment will come out of nowhere. Um, but I don't think that that was contrived and created, you know, by Warner Brothers, right? So nope. that's that's an interesting point that catalog is, you know, it's two thirds of our business, but it's, you know, it's not sexy. It's not something that is worked or at least exploited in the way that some of the, the new release uh, stuff is. Yeah, right. And, and, and she, you know, on, yeah, it, it's, um, she kind of compares this to other, or she talks about, you know, other industries and, you know, so many things in the record business are so opaque and it would just wouldn't be tolerated in other industries. No way. <laughs> no way. And no. so, uh, you know, it's, we, we've got a long way to go to, to, be more transparent yeah. to to really kind of and 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 again Merck, Merck talked about that when we chatted him up and talked about how you know this is still in many ways a very unsophisticated business this music business and um I think this she kind of is is talking with a little bit more specificity about just that very thing that you know that there's unsophistication. a lot of these stuff that just yeah w- would not be tolerated yeah. no. it's just like what no what especially today in a digital world we know yes. the flow of consumption and revenue and all of that. And eventually, I believe, um, because I'm seeing signs of this, we are going to get to a place where there's this great transparency. And some of the indie artists have so much more transparency based on these platforms that they're using. They know about merch sales and venue sales and you know uh, touring revenue, just everything. They're getting like basically almost real-time data on what is happening with their career. And there's some platforms out there, some really great platforms that are doing that. I think yeah. eventually that's going to come to the major label ecosystem and the major indies. So, you know, um, I think some of this is by design. Um, the, yeah. the complexities of the music industry, um, how um, unsophisticated it is, I think is by design. But mm-hmm. man, I mean, those two podcasts that we just talked about, the one with Will Page and then this one where Tim Ingham interviews Amy Thompson, absolutely amazing. Take the time out of your day to listen to those, you know, on your morning walk or when you're working out or making dinner or what, you know, commute, whatever, because there's so much great information. And I really think you'll have an epiphany or two uh, listening to this. Absolutely. And let's just uh, jump into our last story, Jay. Also from Trapital, uh, why your followers aren't fans of your music. And uh, it, it, <laughs> it's kind of a counterintuitive. Um, but as, as Dan explains, it, it starts to make a lot more sense. So it's. Yeah, we should pay uh, him, you-, uh, you know, or send him some cookies or flowers or something for giving us two thirds of our show today. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Absolutely. Um, Thank you, Dan. We do appreciate but, it. But, sure. you know, he kind of kicks it off with that coil array. Uh, you know, he says that coil array has all the cosigns that a rising artist dreams of, right? Signed to Republic records yeah. songs mm-hmm. with Check. Nicki Minaj, little Dirk. Check. Yeah. You know, performed on the tonight show with Jimmy Fallon nominated Check. for BET award over 6 million Instagram followers. Okay. So when artists talk about the machine behind them, this is what they mean. The only thing missing here is a Coachella guest appearance and a British Vogue magazine. So last week, LeRae's debut album, Trendsetter, sold just 11,500 album units. Um, and that's you know around 17 million streams. That's less streams last week than Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, an album that came out 45 years ago. <laughs> okay. Yeah. LeRae's exactly. numbers may, even be eye-pop- may not be eye-popping, but you know, hardly a surprise Artists hear the same rhetoric often. Build your social media following. Build your social media following. Use it to promote your work. Be your own distribution. But that's reductive. Your followers aren't necessarily fans of your music. Right. And he says not followers are the not all followers are the same on most social media networks. It's impossible to segment your followers into different categories. Are your fans there because they love your music or because they like you as a person or do they find your posts entertaining? Do they follow you because they find you attractive? Or do they love the shade room worthy posts you share and don't want to miss the tea? For some artists, it's all of those combined, but most of the time it's not. 
She said the two most followed rappers on Instagram are Nicki Minaj and Cardi B. They use their platforms effectively, but they are a reminder of why this follower fan dynamic is often tougher for women in hip hop. Even the superstars. Um, yeah. Uh, he, said, he said in this case that the industry pushes them to be sex symbols, to be marketable, yet the, the, this, increase, this increases the likelihood that many of their followers are just there to double tap on attractive photos. The social media algorithm will push that artist's content to most users who live for those photos. The narrative that women in hip hop half uh, in in tip in hip hop in it's easy for you to say <laughs> that's easy for me to say the narrative that women in hip hop have to work twice as hard as numbers to back it up. Yeah. But so yeah. as we, so he's talking about again, you know, why are people following you? It may be because of your music, but. It, just as easily could be about your looks. Oh, I'm telling you right now, that is absolutely true. That is absolutely true that um, I have artists that have massive, um, you know, followings on certain platforms because of their appearance and, and people follow them, comment on them, but you need, it's so challenging to, to get a, uh, an artist, I'm sorry, a fan that is, you know, finding you attractive to actually go and stream your music or see your live show or buy merch. Um, just because you have big a big social footprint, that doesn't always equate to butts in the seats. It doesn't always equate to streaming. And I've seen this over and over again. Sometimes it does. But conversely, yeah. I've seen artists with small social footprints that are filling up halls because maybe they're a little bit older and, you know, mm-hmm. their, their fans... Um, aren't really on TikTok. They're not really on Instagram, like maybe some of the younger folks are. And they, they talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you need to match the platform with a clear call to action. And we hear that a lot. You know, a lot of artist managers will say, I like the call to action of subscribe to my YouTube channel and follow me on Spotify. And the reason they they cherry pick those two is because there's a clear result. If you subscribe to somebody's YouTube uh, channel, then you're notified when they have new music, new videos coming out, which is valuable, right? They let them know. And then also on Spotify, um, your music, let's say, you know, I sign up for, uh, you know, to follow somebody on Spotify. The next time they release a track, it's dropped into my release radar or discover weekly or radio or whatever. And a lot of spins come from those sources. So that call to action, he used an example, you know, about this company um, that does text marketing, you know, in the past, Mm -hmm. like uh, Superphone that was... uh, Superphone. Yeah, yeah. it was founder uh, Ryan Leslie. And he talks about this game plan he had that he already understood what he calls the pyramid of intimacy. He knew exactly how to use his service. Here's what he said in, in a 2020 interview. Um, the difference between my 2013 campaign and the campaigns I'm seeing now is that there's a very uh, specific intent captured at the initiation. So I, I didn't just say, hey, here's my number. Shoot me a text. What's up? I said, look, shoot me a text to get my new album. So if they shoot me a text, I already know the reason. And for that, you know, the intent led to 50% conversion rate, 17,000 of the 35,000 people who signed up for his email list bought the album. That's incredible. And that was $170,000 in revenue. Right. But then he also used, uh, he used that to follow up and sell tickets for a concert. So he sold 40,000 tickets at 60 euros, which led to 2.4 million euros. So what a difference in, again, you know, when you talk about sometimes the difference in why artists are so focused on live performance, of course, that would have 170,000. Yeah, the revenue, the dramatically different. But again, what a what a um, what a clever way of recognizing and setting up your 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 fan engagement, very with with a lot more specificity to to with which to sort of gauge its its effectiveness and also to to have a to very the intent is very clear yes. what he's doing. Yeah, and which is very I mean important. it's just it's just so important, and and I say this almost every day, you know that you know your followers aren't necessarily fans of your music. They could be, and they should be, and you need to engage them. But if there's one part of this, you know, we'll kind of end on is that 
it's something I literally say every day. You know, your your social posts can't be buy my album, see my show, buy my album, see my show. There's got to be a relationship. Yeah. There's got to be mm-hmm. a dialogue. There's got to be something deeper than just shouting at somebody to buy your product. And and Dan points out that every post can't be album out now, stream my music. But yeah. the more value you offer that's in line with why people follow you, the higher percentage who will convert to true fans, listeners, concert attendees, or customers. Amen. Bingo. Bingo, bingo, bingo. But if you've got 50,000 followers, you're not going to sell 50,000 albums necessarily. I mean, that's just not the way it works. And it's something to think about. And again, it's, I mean, it's the challenge that I'm sure you face every day, which is, you know, kind of managing expectations with artists, you know, yeah. getting them to do the right things, but also managing expectations right. with right. what comes back. There's audience and then there's engagement. And yeah, absolutely. That's the challenge of the new music business. Uh, great job on these pieces, Dan. Um, oh my gosh. Much, much respect. Stories. I love Trapital. Um, I read as much of what uh, Dan uh, produces as possible. And I encourage our, our readers to subscribe to his newsletter at Trapital. Um, Dot co. It's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L, trapital.co. Uh, sign up for his newsletter. It, uh, yeah, you'll thank me later. It's worth your time. Yeah. It is worth your time, absolutely. So as we wrap up this episode, Jay, it is the end of episode number 89. I do want to thank our sponsors, including the Music Business Association, Hypod, and Bands in Town, for crying out loud. We really, really, really appreciate yes, it. And Jay, what do you say we start the rest of our weekend? And thanks uh, for everyone for listening in. We'll see you next week on episode 90. This has been the Your Morning Coffee podcast. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.